You can't be neutral on the moving train. I told y'all before. You can't believe everything that your teacher tell you. Who is your teacher? Your teacher just learned what they was taught. How do you know what they was taught was correct? Yeah, I mean, dig into the real history of this country and the fact that it was built on blood. But for now, I'm just blessing y'all with this one. A continuation of the first. You can't be neutral on a moving train, 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 train. And that was an excerpt of Writings on Disobedience from Vinny Paz. Welcome to You Can't Be Neutral. This is the evolution of the Bernie 2016, Bernie 2020, and Howie 2020 podcasts. It's a look at the social and political landscape of media and the world through progressive tinted glasses. You can follow on Twitter at YCBNeutral. You can find out more at YouCan'tBeNeutral.com where you'll find all the back episodes, back episodes of Howie 2020 and Bernie 2020, and links to make a donation. You can make a one-time or recurring donation to keep this podcast free and independent. First up is a piece written by Glenn Greenwald. This is at greenwald.substack.com. That the liberal belief in and fear of a Trump-led fascist dictatorship and violent coup is actually a fantasy, a longing, a desire, a craving, has long been obvious. The Democrats' own actions prove that they never believed their own melodramatic and self-glorifying rhetoric about Trump as the new Hitler, from their leaders joining with the GOP to increase the fascist dictator's domestic spying powers and military spending, to their correct belief that the way to oust the neo-Nazi tyrant was through a peaceful and lawfully conducted democratic election in which vote totals and, if necessary, duly constituted courts would determine the next president. The motives for concocting this Wagnerian fantasy about coups, dictatorships, concentration camps, and civil war are numerous. Politics is boring, and your life is unspectacular if it's dedicated to a goal as banal and uninspiring as empowering a septuagenarian career politician, the centrist authoritarian author of the 1994 crime bill, the credit card industry's most loyal servant, and a key Iraq war advocate, along with his tough-on-crime prosecutor running mate, who always seems as if she's just left a meeting of the Aetna Board of Directors, where massive hikes and deductibles were approved. Glory is available only if one can convincingly herald oneself as a frontline warrior, risking it all to courageously battle unprecedented evil and a Nazi-like menace. But working to do nothing more than to elect Joe Biden, Kamala Harris, and the rest of the painfully ordinary and mediocre corporatist and imperialist Democratic Party politicians through a standard American election? There's no glory residing in that. No courage needed for it, to put it mildly. Posturing as a courageous soldier in an existential battle for freedom, democracy, and the survival of the marginalized against Nazi despotism is far more exciting 
and psychologically satisfying and financially profitable than being an obedient liberal drone marching in perfect tune to the dreary McKenzie-scripted musical theater produced by Tom Perez and the DNC. That is, therefore, the delusional storyline adopted by many. Then there's the multi-pronged profit that the Trump as Hitler motif has generated for virtually every institution of American authority. Numerous media outlets that in 2015 were sputtering, if not collapsing. And numerous television personalities about to be fired because nobody was watching them were first rescued, then propelled into the stratosphere by the Trump show. It may not be good for America, but it's damn good for CBS, said the network's then-CEO Les Moonves in 2016 about Trump TV. Of course, media outlets don't want to declare the 2020 election over. They will milk the abundant Trumpian cash cow until the very last drop has been monetized. The frightening specter of a dictatorial menace also led liberal advocacy groups, such as the ACLU, to drown in previously unimaginable quantities of resistance cash, frenetically donated in the name of stopping Trump's incomparable evil. Rotted and discredited institutions like the CIA, NSA, and FBI rebranded themselves as patriotic guardians of liberal democracy and stalwart protectors of a besieged population. Leaders of those security state agencies went from toppling governments, engineering clandestine coups, disseminating disinformation campaigns, illegally spying on citizens, and entrapping young Muslims in manufactured terror plots, to being lavished with book deals and cable news contracts, and celebrated in liberal parlors as saviors rather than destroyers of democratic institutions and Enlightenment values. But the most potent incentives for this warped fairy tale have been the whitewashing of recent U.S. history, the maintenance of American exceptionalism, and most of all, the reputational and career rehabilitative value it bestowed on all those pre-Trump officials, apparatchiks, and myth-disseminating journalists who committed great evils and left a raft of violence, lawlessness, destruction, and death in their wake but now get to claim and have others believe that no matter their sins, at least they weren't authoritarian, white supremacist, neo-Nazi, pathological, lying, fascist dictators like Trump, and therefore deserve to be embraced by and gainfully employed in the family of decent society. That's the deceitful framework that has led to two of the most mendacious and amoral war on terror neocons, David Frum and Bill Kristol, being elevated to their new status as among the most beloved by liberals Trump area pundits with new massive social media platform and frequent MSN appearances. The actual chief propagandist of the Bush-Cheney 2004 campaign and Bush-Cheney White House, Nicole Wallace, becoming one of the most adored by liberals MSNBC hosts. The litany of war on terror killers, including former Bush-Cheney CIA and NSA chief General Michael Hayden, becoming a resistance star, and the most savage disciples of Rovian politics becoming the undisputed champions of political grifting while marching under the tickling the liberal G-spot banner, 
called The Lincoln Project. Flamboyantly denouncing Trump as an unprecedented evil became a cheap, instant, and easy ticket to absolution, redemption, and profit, no matter how barbaric and monstrous one's pre-Trump resume had been. That's why it seems normal, reasonable, and credible that the very same people now demanding that lists of Trump supporters be compiled so as to ensure permanent ostracization themselves justified, advocated for, implemented, and presided over crimes far worse than the Trump administration got close to committing. In the green rooms of CNN and MSNBC, on the op-ed pages of the New York Times and the Washington Post, and in the hearts and minds and bank accounts of American liberals, one now finds the worst and most amoral architects and enablers of the invasion and destruction of Iraq, the worldwide torture regime, the global program of official kidnapping, quote, rendition, Article 2 theories of a lawless and omnipotent president, the drowning of New Orleans, the slaughter of innocents by the thousands at the hands of fighter jets and drones, the targeting of U.S. citizens for assassination by drone, vital support for the world's most barbaric tyrants, the saving of Wall Street at the expense of ordinary homeowners and communities of workers, and the seamless and rapid reimagining of the United States after the fall of the Soviet Union as a country of endless war. How can people with this much blood on their hands, this much admiration of tyranny, this much support for lawlessness and corruption, and with a record of so many lies to obscure and justify it all, possibly find career success and public adoration again? We see the answer in its stark efficacy. They manufacture a never-before-seen monster who poses unprecedented dangers and embraces incomparably evil beliefs, and then they position themselves as the necessary and uniquely suited vanquishers of this new Nazi evil. At first begrudgingly, then enthusiastically, their former critics and adversaries fall into line behind them, cheer them, support them, fund them, hire them, and buy their books en masse. Some will undoubtedly be rewarded with plum jobs or lucrative influence in the new administration. After all, however bad these once-despised figures might have been, it pales in comparison to the new Nazi demon. But this entire narrative is complete and utter bullshit. Blatantly so. There is nothing done by the Trump administration that can be rationally characterized as a radical aberration, some dramatic break from U.S. tradition. Quite the contrary, none of Trump's actions and policies are in some new universe of savagery, lawlessness, or radicalism when compared to those who preceded him in power. The age of social media has fostered a type of reductive thinking and discourse about politics in the world, in which pat and trite phrases have replaced critical thought as our primary instruments for making sense of external events. One can already hear the outraged liberal response to this claim finding expression in a series of dreary, now familiar clichés that fit comfortably into a tweet and chant. Lawlessness and authoritarianism, racism and bigotry, kids in cages, 
He killed 235,000 Americans. Lying. These are the stunted juvenile slogans that are supposed to serve as proof that America has never seen an evil quite like Trump before. That Trump ushered in an unprecedented climate of lawlessness and authoritarianism is perhaps the most stunning of the assertions, particularly when delivered by the Bush-Obama warriors on terror, who succeeded in imposing a model of the American presidency that resided above not only morality, but law. I began writing about politics in 2005 as a reaction to the lawlessness, executive power transgressions, and authoritarian Article II theories imposed by Bush-Cheney officials in the name of fighting terror. They claimed the right to violate congressional statutes, restricting how they could spy, detain, or even kill anyone, including American citizens, as long as they justified it as helpful in the fight against terrorism. They invented new theories of secrecy to hide virtually everything they did, and worse, to bar courts from subjecting their actions to legal or constitutional scrutiny. Josh Marshall's entire career is based on a well-documented claim that the Bush White House and Attorney General Alberto Gonzalez fired U.S. attorneys who were investigating their own associates, including those of Karl Rove. The Obama administration prosecuted more whistleblowers and sources under the 1917 Espionage Act enacted by Woodrow Wilson to criminalize dissent from U.S. involvement in World War I than all prior presidents combined. And in early 2009, the New York Times reporter Charlie Savage, in an article entitled, Obama's War on Terror May Resemble Bush's in Some Areas, detailed how many of the worst authoritarian excesses implemented by Nicole Wallace's bosses would be continued and perhaps even expanded by the new Democratic president. Quote, Even as it pulls back from harsh interrogations and other sharply debated aspects of George W. Bush's war on terrorism, the Obama administration is quietly signaling continued support for other major elements of its predecessor's approach to fighting al-Qaeda. In little-noticed confirmation testimony recently, Obama nominees endorsed continuing the CIA's program of transferring prisoners to other countries without legal rights and indefinitely detaining terrorism suspects without trials, even if they were arrested far from a war zone. The administration has also embraced the Bush's legal, Bush legal team's arguments that a lawsuit by former CIA detainees should be shut down based on the, quote, state secrets doctrine. It has also left the door open to resuming military commission trials. And earlier this month, after a British court cited pressure by the United States in declining to release information about the alleged torture of a detainee in American custody, the Obama administration issued a statement thanking the British government, quote, for its continued commitment to protect sensitive national security information. These and other signs suggest that the administration's changes may turn out to be less sweeping than many had hoped or feared prompting growing worry among civil liberties groups and a sense of vindication among supporters of Bush-era policies.
Perhaps the most radical and tyrannical U.S. government domestic act of the last two decades began at Chicago O'Hare International Airport in 2002, when the U.S.-born American citizen, Jose Padilla, was arrested and accused by then-Attorney General John Ashcroft of being the, quote, dirty bomber, someone trying to detonate a radiological weapon in the U.S. Rather than being criminally charged and prosecuted for those accusations, this U.S. citizen was instead detained indefinitely as a presidentially decreed enemy combatant and held in a South Carolina military brig for almost three years without charges, without access to a lawyer, without communication with the outside world, and under torturous interrogations. All based on the view that a wartime president is omnipotent, bound neither by laws nor constitutional guarantees. Both the Bush and Obama administrations then proceeded to expand their claims of unlimited executive power far beyond merely detaining U.S. citizens with no legal constraints to spying on them and even targeting them for assassination without a whiff of due process. As the liberal writer Adam Serwer argued in 2011, what we're talking about is the establishment of a precedent by which a U.S. president can secretly order the death of an American citizen unchecked by any outside process. This Obama policy meant, said the ACLU's Hina Shamshi, that the president, it seems, can be judge, jury, and executioner. Talk about lawlessness and authoritarianism. As I wrote in the Washington Post shortly before Trump was inaugurated, the Bush and Obama administrations, quote, detained terrorism suspects without due process, proposed new frameworks to keep them locked up without trial, targeted thousands of individuals, including a U.S. citizen, for execution by drone, invoked secrecy doctrines to shield torture and eavesdropping programs from judicial review, and covertly expanded the nation's mass electronic surveillance. Indeed, Trump was able to campaign on and then implement escalated bombing campaigns that killed large numbers of civilians because the bipartisan framework had been laid over the prior two presidencies that empowered that. And that's to say nothing of the legalized torture program, a due process free prison in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean where dozens are still held, almost 20 years later, with no trial. The rendition program where people were kidnapped off European streets and shipped to despotic regimes for torture. And the relentless slaughter of civilians by drones. When it comes to lawlessness and authoritarianism, what are the actions and policies of the Trump administration that compete with, let alone dramatically surpass, these radical seizures of unchecked power by the administrations which preceded him? That the Bush administration was free of overt racism and bigotry would certainly come as a big surprise to an American liberal circa 2006. Recall that the first political statement of major consequence from Kanye West came that year when after watching U.S. government indifference over the flooding of New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina, he announced in a statement widely applauded by liberals that, quote, George Bush doesn't care about black people. 
He also strongly suggested that both media narratives and government responses were permeated with overt racism. That the war on terror itself was racist and Islamophobic. How else do you explain a year after year of predominantly Muslim countries being bombed by the Bush and Obama administrations? Was barely disputed in liberal discourse. Karl Rove's core campaign strategy in 2002 and 2004 was to place anti-gay referenda on as many state ballots as possible and disseminate slanderous propaganda about same-sex couples, all to incentivize evangelicals to vote. And now we're subjected to the revolting sanctimony of the very same operatives and supporters who did that, trying to prove the unprecedented evil of Trump by insisting that at least prior administrations did not rely on bigoted tropes or racist rhetoric. Perhaps the most reflective response to prove the unprecedented nature of Trump's evil is the refrain of the Kids in Cages slogan, shorthand for the Trump administration's policy of separating families at the border which attempt to enter the United States illegally. Beyond the claim of Trump officials that this policy was necessitated by a court ruling which held that only adults can be indefinitely detained but not children, the most vivid refutation of the attempt to depict this as not just immoral but unprecedentedly so is when numerous liberals, including former Obama officials, feigned flamboyant disgust at a photograph of children in cages at the border, only to discover that the photo was from 2014, when Obama was president. While it's true that those children whom Obama put in cages crossed the border unaccompanied by adults, surely that cannot suffice to place those kids in cages in some completely different moral universe as the ones in Trump-era cages, as the New York Times reported in 2015. Quote, A federal judge in California has ruled that the Obama administration's detention of children and their mothers who were caught crossing the border illegally is a serious violation of a long-standing court settlement and that the families should be released as quickly as possible. In a decision late Friday roundly rejecting the administration's arguments for holding the families, Judge Dolly M. G. of Federal District Court for the Central District of California found that two detention centers in Texas that the administration opened last summer failed to meet minimal legal requirements of the 1997 settlement for facilities housing children. Judge G. also found that migrant children had been held in, quote, widespread deplorable conditions in border patrol stations after they were first caught, and she said the authorities had wholly failed to provide the safe and sanitary conditions required for children even in temporary cells. The judge also found that the family detention centers in Texas were a, quote, material breach of provisions requiring that minors be placed in facilities that are not secured like prisons and are licensed to take care of children. The detention centers are secure facilities run by private prison contractors. If immigration abuses are to be the primary metric for determining unprecedented evil, one must also account for the fact that, quote, Immigration and Customs Enforcement, ICE, has deported more immigrants in 2019 
than any full fiscal year of Donald Trump's presidency, but it has yet to reach deporter-in-chief Barack Obama's early deportation levels. And then one must compare those border abuses to the due process-free and human rights-abusing hellholes of Guantanamo, Bagram, and other places opened by the Bush administration and maintained and defended by the Obama administration to imprison people for years, if not longer, with no due process rights of any kind. Prior resistance to the notion of Trump as an unprecedented evil has been somewhat eroded in some liberal precincts by the coronavirus pandemic and the accompanying claim that Trump is now responsible for, quote, killing the 235,000 Americans who have died from it. That Trump was reckless in his handling of the COVID crisis is beyond doubt. But the same is true of a wide array of government and health agencies, including the World Health Organization, which, among several tragic mistakes, told people as late as April not to wear masks, and which, like many liberal media outlets, downplayed the seriousness of the virus. If Trump is responsible for, quote, killing 235,000 Americans because they died of the coronavirus while he was in office, can the same be said of the governments of France and Spain, which, despite much smaller populations, presided over almost 40,000 deaths each, or the governments of Belgium, Peru, Argentina, Mexico, and Chile, which have comparable or higher per capita death rates from the coronavirus than the U.S.? Or WHO officials who told people not to wear masks, even when the CDC said the opposite? And what moral calculus allows deaths from a pandemic, even if the byproduct of negligence and mismanagement, to be placed on the same moral plane as deaths from bombs, drones, tanks, and bullets, or the displacement of tens of millions of people from the war on terror, or the slave markets and anarchy that still persist, after the NATO bombing of Libya, championed by Hillary Clinton and Samantha Power, or the world's worst humanitarian crisis from the U.S.-supported bombing campaign of Yemen that began under Obama. As for the claim that it is Trump's lying that makes him some singular figure of evil, that would come as a great shock to the pioneering left-wing independent journalist I.F. Stone, whose skepticism of government pronouncements was captured by his signature phrase, All governments lie. It would also likely come as a surprise to James Clapper, now of CNN, who got caught lying to the Senate about programs of mass surveillance aimed at the American people, and John Brennan, now of MSNBC, who got caught lying about the CIA's spying on the Senate's investigation of torture, and the number of innocent people killed by U.S. drones. And even if Trump has lied more frequently and more blatantly than prior presidents, a conclusion I would probably accept, how do those lies compare to the ones sustained over many years from liberals' most currently beloved neocon pundits and journalists that convinced Americans that Saddam Hussein was pursuing nuclear and biological weapons and was in an alliance with al-Qaeda, and thus likely responsible for the 9-11 attack, leading to the invasion and destruction of a country of 26 million people, and ultimately the rise of ISIS. 
It should go without saying, though, I know it does not, that none of this is a defense of these Trump failings or an attempt to mitigate the harms they caused. What this argument is instead is a vehement rejection of the grotesque historical revisionism that seeks to erase and whitewash the far worse moral evils, acts of violence, and assertions of lawlessness that preceded him, all in order to propagate myths of American exceptionalism, and worse, to rehabilitate the reputations and careers of the political and media cretins who perpetrated them. Those who want to insist that Trump's evils are unprecedented, such that their own service to or support for prior presidents should not exclude them from the realm of the patriotic, the decent, and the noble, should be prepared to explain which acts of Trump's compete with the destruction of Iraq, or the implementation of a global regime of torture, or the rendition kidnappings and CIA black sites and illegal domestic eavesdropping under Bush and Obama, or imprisoning people for decades with no due process, and on, and on, and on. It is not an exaggeration to say that much of the division on the center-left over the past four years has been shaped by whether one sees Trump as a symptom of American pathologies or as its primary cause of whether one views the return of pre-Trump, quote, normalcy as something to loathe or something to crave, of whether one views the Bush-Cheney years and war on terror abuses, to say nothing of the horrors of the Cold War, as at least as bad as anything Trump has ushered in, or whether one sees those pre-Trump evils as somehow more benign and less ignoble. Those who have most loudly and aggressively insisted that Trump's evils stand alone, are coincidentally or not those who have stood to profit the most from perpetuating this ahistorical mythology. It has allowed them to deceive many into believing that their hands are as clean as their conscience, even though the huge amounts of blood will never be washed away, no matter how many green rooms they are welcomed in, or how much resistance cash they raise, or how melodramatic and hyperbolic is their denunciation of the Trump years. Next up is a piece written by Eliza Featherstone. This is published at jacobinmag.com. This was published on November the 6th, before many of the votes cast on the 3rd were yet to be counted. Many of us have been refreshing the link to the Pennsylvania results for days while mourning the voters Bernie Sanders could have reached, the mediocrity of Joe Biden, and the sad fact that so many of our neighbors and fellow citizens voted for Donald Trump, even after the chaos and mass death for which 2020 has become Gallo's shorthand. The implications of the U.S. presidential and Senate contests will no doubt be parsed for months. Drawing less attention are Tuesday's many progressive and socialist victories, a number of which would have been astonishing just a short time ago. While conservative Democrats like Kentucky's Amy McGrath and Staten Island's Mac Rose were crushed by rabid right opponents who, who, who humiliatingly out-trumped them, the left nationwide offered a way forward. 
Although Florida voted for Trump, that state also passed a resolution to increase the minimum wage, eventually to $15 an hour. That wasn't the only progressive decision made by, quote, red voters. Many communities passed referendums to fund their public schools, even in conservative states like Indiana. I asked education journalist Jennifer Berkshire, co-host of the Education Podcast, Have You Heard?, and co-author with Jack Schneider of A Wolf at the Schoolhouse Door, The Dismantling of Public Education and the Future of School, what she made of this. Quote, Voters routinely come together across party lines to increase school spending, Berkshire explained. If you look at Wisconsin, counties that went big for Trump also voted to hike their own taxes to invest in schools. You see this pattern all over the country. Arizona even passed a statewide tax hike to bring in nearly $1 billion in new dollars to its underfunded school system, a measure that Berkshire notes enjoyed bipartisan support. Portland, Maine joined Florida in voting for a minimum wage hike as well as voting for rent control against facial surveillance and for a local Green New Deal. Democratic Socialists of America, among other groups, campaigned for all four Portland measures. Tenants were also winners in Boulder, Colorado, where voters passed no eviction without representation, a measure to tax landlords and use the money to provide legal representation for tenants facing eviction, another initiative backed by DSA. All in all, Colorado had a feminist night rejecting forced reproductive labor for women, that is to say defeating an attempt by the anti-choice forces to restrict abortion, and for family and medical leave. Montgomery County, Maryland, with DSA's help, defeated a property tax override. Oregon voted to tax the rich to fund universal pre-K. The state also decriminalized a startling number of drugs, including small quantities of heroin, cocaine, and meth, a huge step for the nationwide movement against mass incarceration. Speaking of drugs, South Dakota, Montana, Arizona, and New Jersey legalized weed for adults for any reason while Mississippi approved medical marijuana. Washington, D.C. legalized psychedelics, all of which we will need, especially if Mitch McConnell retains control of the Senate. But I digress. Striking further blows to our cruel and racist regimes of punishment, cities elected and in some cases re-elected, progressive district attorneys who campaigned on platforms of reform, ending cash bail, for example, including Chicago's Kim Fox, St. Louis's Kim Gardner, Mark Gonzalez in Corpus Christi, Monique Worrell in Orlando, Eli Savitt in Ann Arbor, Austin's Jose Garza, and George Gascon in Los Angeles. Speaking of rejecting the Confederacy, Mississippi voted overwhelmingly, 73%, to adopt a new state flag without the Confederate symbol, substituting a more appealingly neutral magnolia. In Congress, the original Justice Democrats-powered squad Ilhan Omar, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Ayanna Presley, and Rashida Tlaib were all re-elected, along with Medicare for All champion Pramila Jayapal and Green New Deal co-sponsor Ed Markey. Katie Porter, a liberal Democrat representing a historically conservative California district, was re-elected by a comfortable margin. 
Progressive educator Jamal Bowman of New York defeated an entrenched incumbent, and activist Cori Bush became the first black woman, nurse, and single mother to represent Missouri in Congress. In fact, it was a powerful night for the Democratic Socialists of America, which had endorsed 29 candidates and 11 ballot initiatives. Of those, at least 20 candidates and 8 ballot initiatives won. In addition to the victories for AOC, Tlaib, Bowman, and Bush, DSA won big in state Senate races. In New York, the organization won five contests for state-level government, re-electing Julia Salazar to state Senate and electing Jabari Brisport to join her, while three more DSA-endorsed candidates, Marcella Mataines, Farah Soufrant Forrest, and Zoran Mamdani, head to the state assembly. Two other DSA members, Emily Gallagher and Jessica Gonzalez-Rojas, both formidable activists whose races were not endorsed by the organization, also won seats in the assembly. Philadelphia sent three DSA-endorsed candidates to state government, Nikhil Saval to the state Senate, and Rick Krzyzewski and Elizabeth Fiedler, Fiedler to the state house. Minnesota also gained a socialist state senator, Jen McEwen, in western Montana, DSA helped send Danny Tenenbaum to the state house. DSA also won impressive local victories, helping to send Greg Kassar to the Austin City Council, Jovanka Beckles to East Bay's Public Transit Board, Dean Preston to the San Francisco Board of Supervisors, and Janice Lewis-George to the Washington, D.C. City Council. In Los Angeles, Constantine Anthony won a seat on the Burbank City Council, and Nithya Raman, candidate for Los Angeles City Council, also looks like a winner, though her race has not been called. The Los Angeles Times called its local elections a, quote, progressive political shakeup, asking, is it just the beginning? There's no doubt that the summer's uprisings against police brutality affected elections here, as in many other cities, amplifying the strong decarceration mandate of the city's district attorney race. Los Angeles County passed Measure J, which sets aside 10% of county-generated funds for social services, including mental health treatment and housing, in communities harmed by racism, prohibiting the local government from spending any of those funds on jails or police. The implications of all these wins? Organizing works. Left majorities can be created. And many Americans want racial justice, serious redistribution of wealth, and a better life for the working class. Next up is a piece published at mondoweiss.net. This is written by Yumna Patel. Under cover of U.S. elections, Israel wipes entire Palestinian community off the map. As the world was engulfed in the unfolding U.S. elections on November 3rd, Israel quietly demolished an entire Bedouin enclave in the North Jordan Valley, leaving more than 70 Palestinians homeless just as temperatures started to drop in the occupied West Bank. At around 11 a.m. on Tuesday morning, the residents of Kirbet Husna were shocked to see a caravan of Israeli military jeeps accompanied by a number of bulldozers and excavators, heading down the dirt path to their village. 
The soldiers often come here to evacuate us when they have military training, Fatima Abu Awad told Mondo Weiss as she sat amidst the rubble of what was her home just 24 hours earlier. But they usually give us a prior warning. This time they came and told us to get out of our houses. They gave us just 10 minutes, she said, adding that the soldiers were accompanied by dozens of workers from Israel's civil administration, the agency responsible for enforcing things like home demolition in the West Bank. After what felt like mere seconds as Abu Awad and her husband tried to empty their home of all the belongings they could, the Israeli bulldozers began demolishing everything around them as what she described as hundreds of soldiers and civil administration workers surrounded them. They didn't leave anything untouched, Abu Awad said. Our homes, our livestock pens, our bathrooms, our water tanks, solar panels, everything. They destroyed everything. Just hours after Israeli forces concluded their demolition campaign in Kirbet Homsa, A cold front swept through the West Bank, leaving the families of the village scrambling to find any form of shelter. It was cold, windy, and rainy, and we had nowhere to go, nowhere to protect ourselves and our small children, she said, adding that the family were forced to sleep under a makeshift plastic tent on cold, wet mattresses on the soaked soil below them. I feel like I'm destroyed inside, Abu Awad told Mondo Weiss. Look around at what happened to us. How would you feel? We have nothing left. Kirbet Humsa is a Palestinian Bedouin community comprising of several tiny clusters of tents and shacks sprawled across the Albukea Plains in the northern Jordan Valley. It is home to 11 Bedouin herding families who have lived on the land for decades. The families maintain a semi-nomadic way of life, relying on livestock and agriculture to sustain themselves and their families who number 74 people, including 41 children. According to Israel Human Rights Group Bitzalem, in addition to 18 housing structures in the village, Israeli forces demolished 29 tents and sheds used as livestock enclosures, three storage sheds, nine tents used as kitchens, 10 portable toilets, 10 livestock pens, 23 water containers, 2 solar panels, and feeding and watering troughs for livestock, along with more than 30 tons of fodder for livestock, and confiscated a vehicle and two tractors belonging to three residents. Several of the structures destroyed in the village, like the portable toilets and solar panels, were donated by the European Union and other foreign aid organizations. Palestinian commentators like Ali Ubunama have been vocal in their criticism of the EU's continued failure to take concrete action against Israel for the destruction of Palestinian homes and structures, many of which, particularly Bedouin areas like Kirbet Homsa, are donated by the EU. During a tour of the village a day after the demolition, Palestinian Authority Minister Walid Asaf, the head of the National Commission Against the Wall and Settlements, described the demolition as an act of terrorism. Standing in front of one of the crumpled solar panels, Asaf asked, What danger does this pose to the security of a state 
that has the strongest of armies and nuclear weapons. Noting that the solar panels powered lights in the village who are not connected to any electricity or water networks. Asaf assured residents, including Abu Awad and her husband, that they had the full support of the PA, who were planning on supplying a number of new tents to rebuild the village. Israel aims to expel us, ethnically cleanse us, and demolish our villages in preparation for annexation and the expulsion of Palestinians from the Jordan Valley, Asaf said, adding, We'll remain with you until everything is rebuilt, even if we have to sleep here, if we have to set up tents like we did in Khan al-Amar. We will not leave this area. Kerbet Home says it lies in the heart of the Jordan Valley and is part of the more than 60% of the West Bank that is located in Area C. According to activists, the demolition of the entire community is one of the largest demolition operations carried out by Israeli forces in years. Beit Salam told, noted that with the demolition of Kirbat Humsa, 2020 has so far become one of the worst years for Palestinians in terms of home demolitions, with more Palestinians losing their homes in the first 10 months of this year alone than in any other year since 2016. As a result of Israel's policy, 798 Palestinians have already lost their homes in 2020, including 404 minors who lived in 218 homes, compared to 677 Palestinians in all of 2019, 397 in 2018, and 521 in 2017, the group said. Though the land of Kirbat Humsa is not owned by the Bedouin inhabitants themselves, it is privately owned by a number of local Palestinian landowners who reside in the nearby city of Tubas and its surrounding villages. One of those landowners, Motaz Bisharat, is a local activist in the Jordan Valley. He told Mondo Weiss that despite having the deeds to the land proving his ownership of it, the state of Israel also considers the land to be state land, which they use for active military training. Israel designates these lands as active firing zones and closed military zones and uses these as a pretext to consistently evacuate and displace these Palestinians who are living here, Bisharat said. While these firing zones have impacted Palestinian herding communities in the Jordan Valley for decades, Bisharat says that activists have seen a surge in recent years of a disturbing trend being employed by the state in these areas. The army will come in and demolish these communities or displace them from their homes, claiming that they cannot be in these military areas, he said. But after the Palestinians have been expelled, the army will turn over the land to the settlers, he continued. We have seen this in the Al-Mazuka, Abu al-Kandu, al-Farasaya, and Kirbat al-Swaid areas in the past few years. The process of expelling Palestinians and turning over lands to the settlers, Bisharat says, is indicative of Israel's agenda in the Jordan Valley region. It all comes down to annexation. Bisharat emphasized that while Israel did not officially enforce annexation as planned on July 1st this summer, it has continued to change facts on the ground, all with what he says is the full support and backing of normalizing countries, like the UAE and Bahrain. Israel has a clear goal. 
expel Palestinians from this land, replace them with settlers, and annex the land into Israel, he said. And they are doing it all in plain view of the international community. Moataz Bisharat, along with several other local and international activists, condemned Israeli forces for using the U.S. elections as a cover for their demolition campaign in Kirbet Humsa. While the international community has rejected annexation, the Israeli occupation wanted to do it quietly behind the international community's back, Bisharat said. What is happening right now is annexation of the Palestinian lands. Quiet, silent annexation. Palestinian Prime Minister Mohammed Shtaya tweeted, quote, As the attention is focused on U.S. election 2020, Israel chose this evening to commit another crime and cover it up to demolish 70 Palestinian structures, including homes. Bisharat blamed the Trump administration for giving Israel's, quote, right-wing extremist government the green light to commit such crimes in the Jordan Valley, calling the demolition of Kerbet Humsa organized international terrorism against the Palestinian existence and Palestinians. When asked if he feared another four years under President Donald Trump, Bisharat said that while things may become even more difficult for the Palestinians on the ground, in the end, it doesn't really matter. Whether Trump wins the elections or not, these lands are Palestinians and we are staying here. Even if the occupation destroys everything we have every time, we will rebuild. Next piece is published at Vox.com, written by Jerusalem Demsas. Over 230 people have died from COVID-19 in Texas's correctional facilities. And in county jails, nearly 80% of them were in pretrial detention and hadn't even been convicted of a crime, according to a new report. A team of researchers at the University of Austin at Texas reviewed data from the Texas Justice Initiative, which collects information from multiple sources, including the Texas Department of Criminal Justice, TDCJ. They found that at least 231 people have died of COVID-19 in the state's correctional facilities between March and October. This report only looked at state-operated prisons and county-operated jails, as researchers were focused on how Texas's COVID-19 prison policies had fared. The 231 figure is likely to be a conservative count. As the researchers note, TDCJ and county jails update death reports after autopsies are conducted, sometimes months after the fact. Additionally, many people have, quote, died without ever having been tested for COVID and others died due to a pre-existing condition worsened by the virus and are not counted in this figure. The death of an inmate is tragic, regardless of the conviction status. But the UT Austin report reveals the state's lack of urgency in keeping as many people safe as possible. Of the inmates in prison who died, nine of them had been approved for parole and were awaiting release. 21 of them had served 90% or more of their sentence. And 58% of those who died in prisons were eligible for parole. Texas isn't alone. Despite the alarm sounded by policy experts, correctional officers, 
and prisoners themselves earlier this year. COVID-19 has been allowed to ravage prison populations, harming inmates, correctional officers, and the surrounding communities for months. Civil rights groups and criminal justice experts advocated reducing the prison population as much as possible to flatten the curve. Unfortunately, few states took serious action to combat the virus in prisons and jails. According to a June ACLU report, no state earned more than a D-, and most earned Fs. As the pandemic was spreading through the U.S. in the spring, prisons quickly became one of the epicenters of the crisis, as my colleague German Lopez reported in April. Quote, In Rikers Island in New York City, the jail's top doctor called the coronavirus outbreak there one of the largest in the county with hundreds sick, a public health disaster unfolding before our eyes. As of April 20, the confirmed infection rate in New York City jails was more than 9%, compared to less than 2% in New York City more broadly, according to the Legal Aid Society. In Michigan's Parnell Correction Facility, 10% of prisoners and 21% of staff tested positive for the coronavirus as of April 15, according to the Detroit Free Press. When controlling for population, that makes the outbreak there even worse than Cook County's or Rikers Islands. In Ohio, more than one in five of the state's confirmed cases are in the prison system, the Columbus Dispatch reported. The Marion Correctional Institution where 73% of inmates tested positive for the virus, makes up a majority of those cases. Correctional facilities provide the perfect storm for an outbreak. As Catherine Kim reported for Vox in early April, jails and prisons are overcrowded. Inmates share everything from cells to showers to dining spaces, and inmates have few resources for proper hygiene. Without room to social distance, proper hygiene becomes even more important. As Kim reported, most correctional facilities do not provide soap, and hand sanitizer has been banned in most prisons because it can be used to brew toxic alcoholic drinks. It's a horrible situation for inmates, staff, and the local communities, which are also left vulnerable to infection as workers commute between work and home. The researchers place blame firmly on the state's leadership, concluding that Texas's failure to curb the spread of the virus in its corrections facilities has resulted in a, quote, devastating impact on the people who live and work in our state's prisons and jails. Next up, a piece written by David Graber, published at the anarchistlibrary.org. To save the world, we're going to have to stop working. Our society is addicted to work. If there's anything left and right both seem to agree on, it's that jobs are good. Everyone should have a job. Work is our badge of moral citizenship. We seem to have convinced ourselves as a society that anyone who isn't working harder than they would like to be working at something they don't enjoy is a bad, unworthy person. As a result, work comes to absorb ever greater proportions of our energy and time. Much of this work is entirely pointless. 
Whole industries, think telemarketers, corporate law, private equity, whole lines of work, middle management, brand strategists, high-level hospital or school administrators, editors of in-house corporate magazines, exist primarily to convince us there is some reason for their existence. Useless work crowds out useful. Think teacher and administrators overwhelmed with paperwork. It's also almost invariably better compensated. As we've seen in lockdown, the more obviously your work benefits other people, the less they pay you. The system makes no sense. It's also destroying the planet. If we don't break ourselves of this addiction quickly, we'll leave our children and grandchildren to face catastrophes on a scale which will make the current pandemic seem trivial. If this isn't obvious, the main reason is we're constantly encouraged to look at social problems as if there were questions of personal morality. All this work, all the carbon we're pouring into the atmosphere, must somehow be the result of our consumerism. Therefore, to stop eating meat or dream of flying off to beach vacations. But this is just wrong. It is not our pleasures that are destroying the world. It is our puritanism, our feeling that we have to suffer in order to deserve those pleasures. If we want to save the world, we're going to have to stop working. 70% of greenhouse gas emissions worldwide come from infrastructure, energy, transport, construction. Most of the rest is produced by industry. Meanwhile, 37% of British workers feel their jobs are entirely unnecessary. If they were to vanish tomorrow, the world would not be any worse off. Simply do the maths. If those workers are right, we could massively reduce climate change just by eliminating bullshit jobs. So that's proposal one. Proposal two, batshit construction. An enormous amount of building today is purely speculative. All over the world, governments collude with the financial sector to create glittering towers that are never occupied, empty office buildings, airports that are never used. Stop doing this. No one will miss them. Proposal 3. Planned Obsolescence One of the main reasons we have such high levels of industrial production is that we design everything to break or to become outmoded and useless in a few years' time. If you build an iPhone to break in three years, you can sell five times as many than if you make it last 15. But you also use five times the resources and create five times the pollution. Manufacturers are perfectly capable of making phones or stockings or light bulbs that wouldn't break. In fact, they actually do. They're called, quote, military grade. Force them to make military-grade products for everyone. We could cut down greenhouse gas production massively and improve our quality of life. These three are just for starters. If you think about it, they're really just common sense. Why destroy the world if you don't have to? If addressing them seems unrealistic, we might do well to think hard about what those realities are 
that seem to be forcing us as a society to behave in ways that are literally mad. Next up is a piece published at blackagendareport.com. This written by Margaret Kimberly. Freedom Rider, the real resistance, begins. When Pennsylvania announced that Joe Biden won in that state, it became clear that he had enough electoral college votes to become the de facto president-elect. When the news became public, millions of people responded with spontaneous celebrations. There was quite literally dancing in the streets in many cities across the country. The public reaction was unprecedented in its scope and demonstrated the depth of antipathy towards Donald Trump, who is one of the most hated presidents in modern history. The vagaries of that same electoral college that put Biden over the top brought Trump into office in 2016, even though he lost the popular vote. The trauma of his victory, one we were told would never happen, was deep and was constantly aggravated by Trump's own words and deeds. The celebrations were difficult for those on the left. Obviously, there was no feeling of connection for the awful team of Joe Biden, a right-wing Democrat, who once said he didn't want his kids to, quote, grow up in a racial jungle, or Kamala Harris, the California prison matron who committed herself to locking up as many people as she possibly could. The level of exaltation was reminiscent of the Barack Obama victory in 2008, when doubters were told not to bring skunks to the party. After the Trump experience, the imperative to support the new neoliberal imperialist administration will be even worse. Kamala Harris in particular is lionized as the first non-white vice president and the first female too. The Democratic Party's propagandists have gone into overdrive as they milk her assent for all that it's worth. Biden and Harris are not the only people who must be resisted. The black political class, the misleaders, are being credited as, quote, kingmakers who brought victory to the entire race. Congressman James Clyburn of South Carolina is one such individual who did the dirty deed of deep-sixing Bernie Sanders and endorsing Biden, just as the party establishment wanted him to do. Clyburn acted on orders from the top, and as such is a lackey and not a kingmaker of any sort. Clyburn isn't the only misleader getting questionable praise. The closeness of the race in Georgia has burnished Stacey Abrams' credentials, too. Even Biden's small lead in Georgia is significant in this previously red state, and Abrams is lauded for her work getting out the vote. The achievement is real, but it is not a good thing when we are given new political stars to adore and to worship. Abrams has her own presidential ambitions and invitations to globalist meetings, such as the Bilderberg Group, and the Council on Foreign Relations are a sign that her interests are not ours. None of these people pushed into prominence are working on behalf of black people. Clyburn is one of the leading recipients of Big Pharma campaign contributions, and now says that the loss of Democratic House seats should be blamed on progressives. 
Quote, John Lewis and I sat on the House floor and talked about that defund the police slogan, and both of us concluded that it had the possibilities of doing to the Black Lives Matter movement and current movements across the country what Burn Baby Burn did to us in the 1960s. We lost the movement over that slogan. A lot of people don't realize. Apparently, COINTELPRO and the state's well-documented destruction of the movement doesn't figure into the Clyburn version of history. There was a half-hearted fake resistance movement after Donald Trump was elected in 2016. They said nothing when Democrats went along with Trump's Space Force and other defense spending programs, but they did wear pink pussy hats. In short, they resisted very little. Now is the time for serious pushback against the duopoly, and that means Biden and Harris. Biden is already talking about healing the country, but he is neither a physician nor a clergyman. No one voted for him to heal anything. He is just repeating what he told rich donors, quote, nothing will fundamentally change. Kamala Auntie and Joe from Scranton will do as little as possible. That is their goal, after all, to fool people into thinking that there will be differences. Trump is an outlier as a persona, but not as a president. Biden and Harris will bring comfort to the nerves frayed by four years of crazy tweeting and epic incompetence. It is their job to do what their voters want. Millions of people took part who ordinarily do not. They stood in long lines at polling places because they want change and not because they are enamored of Kamala Harris's choice of suit color. Of course, when Trump truly differed with the resistance by imposing sanctions that deprive people of medicine in Venezuela and Iran and Syria and Cuba and assassinating Iranian generals, the pink pussy hat wearers were unconcerned. They hit the streets in protest to protect old-school segregationist Jeff Sessions because of a bizarre Russiagate theory, but said nothing when Trump passed the biggest tax cut for rich people in history. The United States desperately needs a real resistance, people who will organize to defend themselves and to hold elected representatives accountable. If they want a party, it can't be because one of the most right-wing Democrats in history will be president. We have already lived through phony change in emotional theatrics instead of political action. Obama's two terms in office gave us a health insurance bailout of the for-profit industry responsible for a failed system. The destruction of states like Libya and black people deprived of the little wealth they had. Unless the Democratic Party scam is called out, we will end up with more of the same. And finally, a piece by Caitlin Johnstone. This published at caitlinjohnstone.substack.com. It looks like a safe bet that Joe Biden will be sworn in on January 20th after successfully campaigning on returning the murderous and oppressive Orwellian U.S. empire back to its pre-Trump, quote, normal. 
The problem with this, apart from the obvious fact that it was an embarrassingly close victory, only made possible by the COVID outbreak, is that returning to the pre-Trump normal is returning to the exact positions which created Trump. It's like using a time machine to prevent a train wreck, but only going back to one millisecond before the train wreck occurred. It is clear that Trump's election was the result of the easily exploited dissatisfaction caused by years of neoliberal austerity at home and neoconservative bloodshed abroad, which Obama forcefully expanded and facilitated throughout two terms as president. Trump voters famously defended opting for the reality TV star over the anointed establishment favorite Hillary Clinton as a middle finger to the Beltway orthodoxy, which did nothing but enrich the swamp Trump pretended to oppose on the campaign trail, while ordinary Americans suffered. And from all appearances, it looks like Biden is going to be worse. Unlike Obama, Biden did not campaign on hope and change. He campaigned on opposing the socialist inclinations of Sanders progressives and an aggressive foreign policy of planetary domination. He assured rich donors that nothing will fundamentally change under his presidency and his transition team is full of corporate sociopaths, war pigs, and propagandists. Biden has been a corporatist warmongering authoritarian throughout his entire career, and as his mental capacity continues to deteriorate, he will function as nothing more than an empty vessel for his establishment handlers to advance their most pernicious agendas through. The empire has not gotten less desperate since Obama was in office. It has gotten more desperate. If I prove right about this, the Biden administration will generate backlash just like that which arose in response to the Obama administration, and that backlash will be more severe than its previous iteration. This is absolutely guaranteed. You can only oppress, neglect, and enrage a population so much before the discontent begins to grow. There is absolutely nothing American leftists can do to prevent this backlash from coming. They will have absolutely no say in this administration's policies or behavior. Biden Corp. has no reason to listen to them, has made no pretense of having any interest in listening to them, and is even even freezing Sanders and Warren out of cabinet roles already. All U.S. leftists will have any control over is whether this backlash will break to the left or if it will break to the far right. Contrary to what mainstream liberals seem to have been imagining, American racism and far-right extremism did not begin with Trump and will not end with Trump. The white supremacists, xenophobes, ethno-nationalists, QAnon cultists, and right-wing militias are not going anywhere after Biden takes office and the backlash against his administration and its worst impulses will be inflamed and co-opted by mainstream Republican narrative managers. This will set the stage for something a lot uglier than Trump down the road, if it is successful. What the left can do is get ahead of the game. 
take control of the anti-Biden, anti-establishment pushback by leading the charge sooner, more aggressively, and more compellingly than the far right does. Use the awfulness of the Biden administration to ignite a true leftward zeitgeist in mainstream America that is so strong it eclipses the inevitable rightist backlash in energy and appeal. We already know the American left has the ability to pull this off. The grassroots populist support for Bernie Sanders during his two primary campaigns has been one of the most energized and inspired political forces I've ever witnessed, consistently forcing aggressive responses from the establishment narrative managers to contradict the damage it did to their preferred candidates. The problem with Bernie Twitter and the rest of his powerful support base is that it only exists for a few months at a time fizzling out when it becomes clear that their candidate has the door shut to him and then reluctantly diverted into support for the establishment candidate under the guidance of Sanders himself. But imagine if that did not happen. Imagine if the U.S. left realized how extremely urgent it is to control the unavoidable backlash against the Biden-Harris administration so that the right does not and build and built momentum in healthy direction instead. Not for a few months, but for years on end. Seizing every disgusting, ridiculous, and hilarious thing this government does, and attacking it, lampooning it, mocking it, creating funny and interesting content, absolutely wrecking it, and taking control of the dominant narrative. An actual energized counterculture could be created which could reshape U.S. culture as a whole. The Breitbart crowd recognizes that politics is downstream from culture, while the left has generally failed to make this connection, which is arguably why their guy is in the White House right now, and the left's guy isn't. A Biden administration will provide ample fodder for attacks against status quo politics, and this can be used to galvanize America's hidden progressive impulses into a movement vastly greater than any one candidate. But the ball needs to start rolling on this now, not after the Georgia runoffs, not after Biden takes office, not after the midterms. Now. The longer U.S. leftists wait to start pushing this thing forward, the less of a head start you'll have on the rightists while they're fixated on Trump's recounts and legal challenges. You'll only be able to lead the backlash if you get in early and hit the ground running as fast as you can. If we know anything for certain, it's that U.S. power structures find it infinitely preferable to deal with a right populist movement that can be appeased by some obnoxious tweets and an 8chan psyop than with real leftist populism. They're more than happy to throw the far-right a tax cut and some immigration restrictions, but real revolution can only come from the left. There is an opportunity to create an opening for that to occur, but it needs to happen before this thing can be steered rightward. I know I'm regarded as a big of a bit of a crackpot in some leftist circles. I'm the girl a lot of lefties read in private, but don't share in public. But this is a really important idea that needs to get out there, 
and am hoping it reaches the eyes of some leftist thought leaders who can advance it in their own words, in their own way. This is very urgent, and the more people understand this, the better shot we will have at creating a healthy world for everyone. Please get thinking about this. Everyone. And that'll wrap up this episode of You Can't Be Neutral. You remember, you can find all the back episodes at youcan'tbeneutral.com. You can follow You Can't Be Neutral at YCBNeutral on Twitter. You can also listen to this podcast and all my podcasts playing 24-7 at movingtrainradio.com. And now, a moment of zen. Thanks for listening. Yes, so I'm asking all of us to transcend what is coming at us on all sides and, uh, and to think carefully and clearly. Because if we are all going to be herded into actions which are more dangerous, more dangerous than, even than what we are facing now, you know, then we will later regret the fact that we went all along silently and didn't raise our voices as citizens to ask, how can we get at the roots of this problem? And what can we do about it? And all of us can do something, can speak up. That's the most important thing, ask questions. It's the American thing, it's a patriotic thing to do, to question, to ask, to rethink. I want to end by reading a work of another artist, a poet, Daniel Berrigan, longtime anti-war activist. Uh, even after the Vietnam War, he continued, uh, uh, continued struggling against war and militarism. And he wrote this poem in memory of a friend of his, a man named Mitchell Snyder, who had worked for the homeless in Washington, D.C., and then at a certain point, worked for years and years and years for the homeless and became disconsolate at, at what the government was unable to do, even while the government was building jet planes and bombers and nuclear submarines and, and nuclear missiles, and the government didn't have enough money to take care of the problem of the homeless, and he became disconsolate, and, and he killed himself one day. And, uh, and Dan Bergen wrote this, in loving memory, Mitchell Snyder. Some stood up once and sat down. Some walked a mile and walked away. Some stood up twice, then sat down. I've had it, they said. Some walked two miles, then walked away. It's too much, they cried. Some stood and stood and stood. They were taken for fools. They were taken for being taken in. Some walked and walked and walked. They walked the earth, they walked the waters, they walked the air. Why do you stand, they were asked, and why do you walk? Because of the children, they said, and because of the heart, and because of the bread. Because the cause is the heart's beat, and the children born, and the risen bread. <laughs>